Standing and hear the words from the Gospel of John, again, as we continue uh, through chapter 11. I'll begin at verse 17 this morning. These are the words of God. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, that is, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. When she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not, did I not say to you that, you would, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, your word is light and life, but only to those who are granted the Holy Spirit. Pour out your spirit in abundance now in the preaching and in the hearing, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Last Lord's Day, I set the context of this passage as we looked at the first part of the story of Lazarus, focusing on his death and the sovereign delay of God as you recall. Well, having set that context, we really now come to the seventh sign itself. We have had um, seven signs in the book of signs, the first 11 chapters of, of John. We have um, the water being turned into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son um, when Jesus was even away, distant from him, the healing of the lame man at, at the pool of uh, Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus then walked on the water, and then the healing of the blind man coming now to the seventh 
sign. This seventh sign um, is, is a climax of sorts. It is a, it is a wonderful picture of Reformation Day, of, of God bringing forth that which is dead and, and bringing it back to life. This is the climax of all the signs, the glory of God revealed in his power over our greatest enemy, death. And John records this for us. He says over and over again, these signs have been given so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. That's what these signs have been all been pointing to. The sign and Jesus' declaration, I am the resurrection and the life, are not simply to correct our vision from the distant future to the immediate present. And we see this in the discourse that takes place between Jesus and Martha. It is not just faith in the resurrection to come. Martha already has that. Um, The Jews already have that. But there's something to be said about the person of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. This is another one of the I am statements as well. And so it's not simply to correct our vision from uh, that which is going to happen in the future to instead to the immediate presence, the immediate present for ourselves, but also to fix our eyes on Jesus himself. We are to be occupied with the person of the Lord and not simply future events. You know, future events like where, where you're going to go when you die. All kinds of questions that we have as Christians about the future and about our lives. But instead, these signs are given that we might see Jesus, that we might be drawn to Jesus, that we might see him as the life, as our life, as our light, as our good shepherd, as our bread of life, as our living water, as our resurrection and life today. All of these signs have been pointing to show us that about Christ. What what I'd like to do is I'd like to see little reformations take place in your heart and mind this morning. As you are not just brought before the truth of who Jesus is, but before Jesus himself. Just as Lazarus was brought before Jesus out of the grave. Now, as we do so, I want to take a look at, at, uh, at how Martha responds to Jesus coming and then how Mary responds to Jesus coming, noting some of the differences in what we can see and learn from these things. Jesus comes to Bethany after Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. We know about that. Now, it was the custom of the Jews um, to have a time of mourning that lasted seven days, which would explain why after four days, there are still so many around that are mourning with Martha and Mary regarding the, their loss of their brother. So the, um, once, once someone had, had died, they would prepare the body and they would put the body quickly into a tomb for obvious reasons. But then the mourning would go on, especially if you were a family of, of prominence and of, a family with wealth, um, a, a funeral service or a, a time of mourning would go on with friends, family, and, and, and others for seven days. And so this, this explains why we have all these people here still at Martha and Mary's house. I think Martha and Mary and Lazarus were actually probably both prominent people and, and probably a wealthy family. We, it, it says here that the Jews, and remember when the Jews are mentioned throughout the Gospel of John, most of the time he's referring to the Jewish authorities, not just a crowd of Jews. I mean, you're in Judea and Jerusalem, for heaven's sake, right? They're all Jews. So when he says the Jews gather, he's really referring to the Jewish authorities that have come. They're just, it's just two, less than two miles away from uh, uh, from Jerusalem. So you, you have prominent officials who have come 
probably those who knew, knew Lazarus, maybe worked with Lazarus, and, and they are there. We also know that they're probably wealthy. I mean, in the very next passage, and, and we know from the other Gospels as well, that um, at, at one point, Mary takes spikenard oil um, worth a year's wages and pours it, anointing the feet of Jesus. It's not like all the Jews always had a bottle of spikenard oil, all of them in their house, that was, a, that was worth a year's wages. This is evidence of, of a wealthy family. So, uh, this is the context where, where, where Lazarus has died, and now Martha hears that, Je- that Jesus has come. And as, as you see Martha coming to Jesus, um, there's really some parallels here in, in her discourse and how she comes to Jesus and what she says with, with the time that Jesus was with the woman at the well. The, the, uh, the woman, that woman at the well, wanted water, but didn't realize that living water was right before her. And similarly, um, um, she was thirsty, but Jesus shows her how much deeper that thirst really was. Now, Martha knows that Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had been there, she, and even hints that he could do something even now, in verse 22, but doesn't realize her deeper need than just life from the grave. Couldn't you just bring him back to life from the grave? She believes, when he talks to her about um, that Lazarus will live, she believes that there will be a resurrection at the last day, um, just as the woman believed there was really water in the well. But Jesus is pointing to something far greater, um, far more eternal, and far more real. Far more real than just being brought back from the dead, as Lazarus will be. Lazarus isn't with us anymore. So Lazarus is revived in essence. He's resuscitated. He's brought back from the dead. He was really dead. But he died again. There was, some, there was a sign that was being given to us, something about the person of Jesus and, and what he represented, what, who he was for us. So Martha believes there's a resurrection at the last day, but she doesn't see the resurrection and life that are right before her in the person of Jesus. To the woman at the well and to the worshipers at the Feast of Booths, Jesus promised to give those who asked him living water. To Martha, he promised that her brother would rise again, verse 23, but ultimately he will do so because he is I am. In him was life, we are told. Remember John chapter 1, verse, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of the world. In him, in Jesus, was life. It's not just that Jesus gives life. He is life. He is the resurrection and the life. Don't keep Christ at arm's length answering the questions of life that you have. Come to Jesus for life. Jesus is that life. Um, Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die... He shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, he's, he's not saying that, that we're not going to die, but he just said we're not going to die, <laughs> right? He's, because if he said, if we believe in him, that we shall never die, then he got it wrong, because we put loved ones in the grave all the time. What's he saying? What's he pointing to? What are the signs teaching us? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
So to make sense of this, we must see that Jesus is talking about far more than physical life. This sign is declaring the deadness of mankind and the separation of mankind from life. Because in God is life. In Jesus is life. Jesus is life. And we find ourselves, humanity finds itself separated from God, separated from Christ, and therefore separated from life. Ephesians 1 tells us, and you, you Christians, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We, we find ourselves as a people totally unable to save ourselves. Totally unable. Dead men cannot decide to rise. They're dead. Dead men can't desire to rise. They're dead. They don't want to rise from the dead, and they can't rise from the dead. That's the state of humanity. That's what this sign is pointing to. That's what this ultimate sign is pointing to. And it's pointing to the first resurrection for those who are called by Christ out of their state of spiritual deadness and into new life in him. There is a final resurrection, a final bodily resurrection. But what Christ is pointing to at this moment, as he's talking about Lazarus and teaching, is he's talking about a resurrection that is for us now. A resurrection from the dead into life. A resurrection from separation from God and into the very presence of the good shepherd. <coughs> it is this that he's given. Ephesians goes on in chapter 2, says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace. It's all grace. It's sola gratia. It's sola fide. It's all by believing. Do you believe, Jesus says. To the, to, so, so what do we have here? In, in this world, you can find people all over the world who sense they, they have a, a deeper thirst than what they really they realize, and they're looking for something to be quenched. A deeper hunger for meaning and purpose and value in life. We might see people who know that they need to be enlightened, come to understand what the world is really all about. And we might see, uh, and, and people honestly <clears throat> admitting that they need these things and searching for them. We, we might, we might, they might know that they need a shepherd who will protect and guide them in some ways. But ultimately, what this world cannot see and what this world will not see is that they're dead. And they need life. You see that? You see, all other religions of the world will, will point to and answer these questions of the need for enlightenment, a greater understanding of reality, a hunger or a thirst that needs to be quenched, um, a, a, a shepherd, a guide, a teacher who will lead us and protect us. All other religions will give us that. But only in Christ and only in our religion are we talking about speaking to dead people which is ridiculous, right? We're, we're talking about telling dead people to come alive. We're telling dead people to, to rise up and come to, to Christ. Dead people can't and dead people won't. And, and Jesus comes and speaks. And when life speaks by the power of the Spirit, when life speaks by the power of the Spirit, dead people come to life. 
That's what the sign is pointing to. That's what Jesus is talking about. So, ultimately then, as I said, what this world cannot see but must see is that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in our old nature. Dead in that nature and that Jesus is the resurrection and life. Not just that there is resurrection and life, but that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We are a condemned race. We are the living dead. We are the living dead. And so that's, that's what's going on as, as Jesus makes this point to, to Martha. Now she replies in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She believes the doctrine. She's even before him. And yet there is something that's still not, I think, quite connecting for her. She goes back and she tells Mary quietly, the master is here and he's calling for you. The teacher has come and he's calling for you in verse 28. You see here, again, if you remember the, the story in the other gospels of Martha and Mary and, and Jesus, they, they're having a feast for them, uh, putting on quite a feast apparently. Mary is, um, is at Jesus' feet there and she's just with Jesus. Martha is busy as can be, getting, getting all the preparations taken care of. And she finally comes into Jesus and says, Jesus, what's, what's the deal here? You know, I, all the, there's all these people, there's, all this, there's, there's a meal to be prepared, Mary's sitting before you. And he says, Mary understands the greater thing, the greater thing. So Mary's the ponderer, the one before Jesus. And you see, when, when Martha, full of action, went to meet Jesus as, as soon as he was coming, Mary, more the ponderer, remained at home with the mourners until she's been summoned by Jesus to come. As she gets up, many of these mourners, they say, are, we're told, follow her. So what takes place now takes place in, uh, before the witness of these Jewish authorities and others um, who had been with Martha and Mary. When Jesus sees her weeping, let's look, look at verse 33 here. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And that word groaned, the Greek is embrenaomai, um, embrenaomai. It almost sounds like what it originally meant, was, which was the sound of a horse snorting. Okay, so that, that's, what, that's what that verb meant. Um, it, this, this idea um, could be an expression from within of deep sorrow, but it more often had the idea of great indignation, of, of just deep disagreement with what is, what is before you. Jesus is shaken by the grief death brings, but, but he's even more by the death impregnated, impregnated world. Um, uh, Michael Card, actually, in a commentary that he has on, on the Gospel of John, writes that perhaps he's even realizing that in a matter of days, he will be the one who is dead and in the tomb. It, it's not just that Jesus is, is, uh, is uh, sympathetic, which he is, to, to, the, to the loss of a friend. Um, he will weep himself. But this groaning is this indication that he hates death. And as much as, uh, as much as John brings forth Christ's full deity, so he also here is revealing his full humanity. And John seems to do this in his gospel um, with, uh, with great clarity um, all through it. In, in, in the very beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But then verse 14, and that Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John reveals in, in many different other passages um, Jesus' full humanity. His, um, we, he tells us of Christ being weary from his journey, chapter 4. He tells us, and he's the only one who records Jesus thirsting as he hung upon the cross in chapter 19, and of his weeping here with those he loved over the loss of a friend. And I think this is comforting when we find ourselves mourning over the death of a loved one, even when we know they are now with the Lord if they died in Christ. Jesus hates death and all that death comes from and points to. You, you know, I, I know we struggle when we lose a loved one, and we comfort one another when, when we lose a loved one who we know is with the Lord, and, and we, we're the only people who actually can say they're in a better place. We're the only people who can say that. And that, and that is a comfort. But you, oftentimes when that happens, you, 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 you wonder within yourself why you still are crying, why are you still weeping, and, and why is it so hard to, to celebrate? And it's because we've all approached death again. We've, we've approached this enemy. We, we've watched this enemy do things we hate. And that, that brings this, this same kind of groaning, this deep indignation about the state of things out from us. One commentator writes, this also makes an important point about Jesus' tears and about tears in general. Since Jesus possesses a true humanity, indeed a perfect humanity, and since Jesus wept, we should not be ashamed to do likewise. Some Christians seem to think that by virtue of their salvation, they've been lifted out of the human condition. But being a Christian makes us not less human, but more human, more like Jesus. And there are things in this world for which Christians should weep. Christians are not Stoics, and the stiff upper lip is not a sign of grace. And so when Jesus looks on death, he sees the wreckage caused by sin, and he sees the fingerprints of his hatred, of his hated enemy, the devil. Benjamin B. Warfield um, wrote these words, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state, not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. God sent Jesus to do something about this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so in this sign story, Jesus says, where have you laid him? Jesus moves to action. And in that sign, we are being shown that he moves to action over the thing that he hates, which is death, and over the thing which he is going to conquer, which is death. And so in verses 38 through 42, Jesus again groaning, this indignation in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha says, the sister of him who was dead said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. <laughs> but as we come to this, 
we have to, you have to wonder, you're to approach this part of the story and think, well, can Jesus do something about this now? He's dead. He's been dead four days. The stench of death and decay is all around. But Jesus says in verse 40, responding to, to Martha, he says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus turns and he thanks the Father, teaching us to do the same in the midst of our deepest needs as well. He turns to the Father in the midst of of this deep need, just as we ought to learn to come to the Father as well. We should watch as Jesus turns to the Father and gives thanks in the midst of an anxious moment. And think of Paul's writings, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. His miracles had been blasphemously attributed to Satan throughout his ministry. It's recorded uh, throughout the Gospels. Mark 3.22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And so I think it's part of the reason why Jesus also um, says here, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants to make very clear who he is acknowledging before he turns to do this act. And so he prays openly to the Father that they might believe that the Father sent the Son. To see the glory of God is to see the dead raised to life. If he's saying, okay, so... How do I see the glory of God? How is it that I am to see the glory of God? He said, if you believe, Martha, you're going to see the glory of God. The glory of God is to see dead people raised to life. To see sinners forgiven. To see lives transformed. To see men and women, once lost, found. As we Christians gather together here on the Lord's Day... Behold the glory of God. You see that? If you're in Christ, we are all Lazaruses who have been brought out of the death, uh, brought out of the grave, brought, brought out of death. Let God open your eyes and see. Let, let God open your eyes and see and hear the stories of the amazing grace of God operating in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. See the glory of God at work. That is what you are invited. That is what you are invited to do every Lord's Day as you come. That's what you are invited to see every day in fellowship with other Christians. But then I want to come just to the last two verses and consider them more directly. Verse 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come forth. Jesus cried with a loud voice, not because he needed to shout. He was speaking with his divine authority, with the voice that had spoken the cosmos into being. Genesis 1-3 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. John 1-3 says, All things were made through him, the word. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And so we are to see, in in creation, we are to see already the the triune God. We have the Father who speaks the word while the Spirit hovers over creation. We are to see 
that, that, that all persons of the Godhead are there. Jesus was the word spoken that brought forth out of nothing all the things that we see, all the things that have been made. Jesus, the word spoken, and if Jesus, the word spoken, can bring forth all things, all things that we cannot, that didn't exist into existence, then how easy is it for the spoken word to bring forth out of the grave a dead Lazarus into life? Let's sort of see. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Quit trying to find the Big Bang, folks. It was the word. It was the spoken word of God that brought out of nothing everything that is around us. That, that's all you have to know. That's all you have to know about how did everything come into creation. Jesus spoke. <laughs> or the Father spoke, and his word was the Son. That is how everything came into existence. How, how are we to know that? By faith. Hebrews 11.3. That, that which was not was brought into being, and that which was dead, he now speaks into life. Lazarus is called by name. And remember, I told you as we looked in the previous chapter and we saw the doctrines of grace, and I said you'd see these illustrated in the story of Lazarus. So we saw this dead, unable to save himself, total inability, Lazarus lying in the grave. Now we see Jesus speak, and he doesn't, and remember, he's in a graveyard, okay? He could have said, come forth. He could have said, all of you who would like to, come forth. He could say, with eyes closed and heads bowed, all of you in your graves who would like to be born again, would you please raise your hand? Yes, I see that bony knuckle. Right? No. Jesus calls forth by name, by election, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, who's totally unable, is drawn by nothing but the grace of God. He didn't earn it. He didn't help in any way. He didn't raise that little bony finger. He didn't do anything. He comes fully and completely by the grace, and he comes by that irresistible grace of God. As he does so, we see the work of the atonement, a definite atonement. Christ's, Christ's word is sufficient to raise all of them, all of them in the grave, but efficient only for the elect. Christ's saving work is sufficient for all the world. It is efficient for all that he calls by name to himself. And here we see it in, the, in this story laid out for us. It's, it's pictured for us in this sign. Peter tells us how we've been born again. Peter tells us, he says, we have been born again, 1 Peter 1.23, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever which lives because the word of God is life. The word of God is life. The word of, in, in fact, in that passage, he says, um, therefore, you need to go eat it and drink it and be hungry for it. You, you, if you're a Christian, you, you, you've been brought to life by the word of God, by the word of God preached, imparted by his spirit in your heart. If that's true, you should hunger for a lot more. You should want more God's word in you, like a newborn babe. Like a newborn babe loves his mother's milk, hungers, doesn't have to be taught. In the same way, 
you, Christian, hunger for God's word. If he's, if he's brought you that life, then you are to hunger more and more for it. It's the word of God that gives us life. It's the word of God that nurtures that life. And then that life, though. Maybe this is the most important part of, of what I want to say this morning. I want to take it from verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So Lazarus comes out bound in grave clothes. Jesus says, loose him. It is all of grace that we are brought to life in Christ. All we contribute to our salvation is our stench. That's what you bring. Your stink. Now, having been brought to life, we are to live that life. We are to live a life of grateful obedience. And this is where we all get tripped up. We think that now we are to live our life with, in grateful obedience, but we often forget that this is all of grace as well. It was the word that brought you life, and it was the spirit-wrought word that is going to nourish you in that life. It is going to be the work of God's spirit that is going to impart to you glad-hearted obedience before the Lord. And that's what we are to see. But we often forget that this is, this is all of grace, and obedience is to occur, though, from a position of grace and spirit-filled power. The same grace and power that brought us out of the grave. We live our lives obediently before God with the same grace and power that brought us out of the grave. Okay? It's the same stuff. It's the same person. It's the same spirit. And this is why Paul tells us um, throughout, uh, both, uh, really in Ephesians and Colossians, all through there, that you need to take off your grave clothes. Like you come out of, you come out of the grave, what are you doing wearing those grave clothes still? What do I mean by that? Well, um, we, we instead need to put on Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 says, um, speaking to Christians, Paul writes that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You once were with that team, that team of the death stench of the devil. You are brought into new life, and you're, you're, you're traded to the next team. You're traded to the next team, and you've got to take off the old uniform and put on the new uniform. Now, now, what's that referring to? Well, if you read through the rest of Ephesians, um, you can see what, what he's talking about, what you're to put off and what you're to put on. What are the grave clothes that you need to be put off? What grave clothes still have a powerful pull on you? Because if Jesus is the resurrection and the life now in his person... Not just that you're going to be raised from the dead. Look, you, this is the way a lot of Christians live. I got saved. I got my ticket. I got it in my pocket. When I die, I'm going to heaven. And now, I, I don't know. I'll try to be good some. But really what's important is I got the ticket, so I get to heaven. That's not our gospel. Our gospel is when you were, you were dead and you were brought to life. And the reason you know you're going to heaven when you die is because you've been brought to life. Now live in that life. What life? Jesus, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am right now, right now for you. I am the resurrection and the life. You live in that resurrection life now. And so this, this is in him. This, this resurrection life is for you to walk in, Colossians 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So, this story of Lazarus coming forth is not just an opportunity to preach the gospel of grace to unbelievers. It is an opportunity to preach the gospel of grace to believers. To believers. Here's life. What grave clothes still have a powerful pull on you? Sexual immorality, anger, covetousness and envy, bitterness, worldly sorrow. You could fight them. You could fight them with a whole lot of effort, with lists and strict regimes. Imagine dead Lazarus rolling around the tomb while Jesus tells him to come forth. Just a moment. I got I to do some of the work myself here first. Or after he gets out, imagine, uh, imagine revived Lazarus wanting to keep his grave clothes on. I was wearing them for four days. I might just keep them on here for a little bit longer. Everybody would, just go, everybody would say, yuck, get those off. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what God is saying to you about your envy and your lust and your bitterness and your depression, your worldly sorrow. That's what God is saying. God is saying, yuck, get that off. What are you doing wearing that? Don't you know whose team you're on now? Don't you know the, that I am the resurrection and the life? Hear the words of Jesus to you now. I am the resurrection and the life. You don't fight them with your lists and your strict regimes and your do-goodness. That's the weight and guilt, grief and sorrow of the death in which you once lived and were bound. It was the voice of Christ that called you into life, and it is his word in you now by his spirit that directs you that directs you now, by grace, through faith. We want water because we're thirsty, and Jesus says, actually, I have something a lot deeper for you than that. We want bread because we're hungry, and Jesus says, fine, but I've got something a lot more satisfying for you than that. All those things are pointing to something I have, which is far more satisfying. Now, what is it that you desire? What is it that you desire that leads you into those great, continuing to wear those grave clothes? What is it that you really desire, that you think you've got to have? What is it that keeps you putting on this immorality or anger or covetousness or worldly sorrow? What is it? Because I'm telling you, the thing that you're desiring, that, that deepest need within you that is driving you, you will find completely satisfied in the resurrection life, in Jesus. So he said, I have, I have far more for you. I can satisfy that need far deeper than anything you're trying to grab onto. I am here for you today. I am the resurrection and the life. As, as uh, one great preacher used to say, quit trying and start trusting. We're called to obedience. And that obedience is really an obedience, first of all, of rest. Resting in the Lord Jesus, resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid, not just paid the price, he lived a perfect life on your behalf. His righteousness has been imputed and given to you. All of your sins taken upon him, uh, and, and as he hangs on the cross, he dies bearing the complete payment for those sins, buried, and then rise, rises from the dead. Lazarus was just a little picture of what was still to come in just a few days. Obedience comes fundamentally from resting, from believing. We're called to obedience 
But obedience for a regenerate Christian is very different than obedience for someone dead in their tomb of sin. Quit trying to live a good life. Quit trying to be good. Stop it. Rest in the perfect goodness of the one who has already done it all for you and in you and will through you. How do, how do I know? Because of the story of Lazarus. This is your day of reformation then. This is your day, this is your day of revival. This is your day to, to put off the grave clothes. You've been called. You are in Christ. He, he's purchased you with his own blood. He's put you on his team. He's given you, he's granted you new life. He's empowered you by his spirit. And he's told you to live and walk by faith in that light. Because in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Because in him is resurrection, newness, and revival. It's, it, he, is, he's, he is offering it. But more than offering it, he's demanding it of you. He's demanding of you to stop trying and simply trust. Trust with a living faith that transforms you by the resurrection life of Jesus in you. Walk out of the tomb with resurrection life, get rid of the grave clothes, and enjoy, enjoy eternity starting right now. Sins forgiven. Guilt gone, completely washed, made new, promised to be with Christ forever. Every affliction, every trial, as we talked about, is a delay from God, which is only promoting, making a, a greater weight of glory that will be yours. What do I have to do? Believe. Hear the word? Believe. And that faith, even that faith, is the gift of God. But in, in the authority, in the authority that the church has vested on me, I declare to you Jesus Christ, dead and risen from the grave, seated at the right hand of God now, pouring out his authority by his Holy Spirit in your life now for eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And amen. Thank you, Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is today the resurrection, and the life. Bestow that resurrection life now upon these brothers and sisters. Let them behold their Savior and remove those terrible-smelling grave clothes. Grant life here to those dead in their graves, bound in their sin. And let us be a people who walk in the new life that is ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand and respond, number 447, and can it be.